Chapter 2. Saying Goodbye I have given them, the disciples, your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. John chapter 17, verses 14 through 19. It's been popular for many years to say things like, All roads lead to heaven, or Any road will get you there. But doesn't that overlook the nature of a fork in the road? The only thing one cannot believe about diverging paths is that they aren't really parting. Different paths exist because they lead to different places. We have to leave the path of insubstantial worldliness behind, decisively. In the last chapter, we considered the dangers of our deformational culture in contrast to the kind of formational culture we need and ought to cultivate. Escaping worldliness means seeing the deformational culture for what it is and saying a decisive goodbye. What does that really mean? Does it mean we're going to leave all the structures of secular modernity behind? Are we going to form rural communes without internet or plumbing or burritos? My wife's response was, only if it's a Chilean mountainside. You know, so there's still coffee. The reality is that we can't leave the world and God wouldn't want us to if we could. Rather, we need to learn to discern the real from the counterfeit and say a decisive goodbye to the worldliness that keeps us addicted to lesser things while numbing our craving for greater things. In this chapter, we'll consider what it means to say goodbye to worldliness while wholeheartedly embracing that Jesus has sent us to the world. No perfect environment. There is no distinct city of God on earth. No social situation or structure produces spiritual substance in the way modern secularism produces worldliness. In Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, King Agur says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal, and so dishonor the name of my God. Of course, being a king, Agur had more than daily bread. The point of the proverb is that the sweet spot where spirituality is supported by the right natural tension is razor thin. What environment is most conducive to godliness? Apparently, it is above starvation and below having food in your cupboard for tomorrow. That's a pretty narrow window. The logic is that we'll be more likely to trust God if we recognize that we're dependent on Him for surviving the next 24 hours. Everything else is poverty or riches both of which carry their own sets of inherent temptations. Generations of men and women in every corner of the world have had to deal with the spiritual trial of poverty, among other trials, and for now many of us face the spiritual trial of wealth, especially its sin of self-sufficient pride that denies God's authority in everything, saying, Who is the Lord? No environment can exist that perfectly builds our faith and removes temptations unless it is built entirely in faith exercised in discernment and vigilance. God is saying that every earthly environment has serious worldly temptations. We can't run from the worldly environment to a fully godly one. There's no such place in our current world, and even if there were, we aren't supposed to retreat to it. Sent to a worldly world. 
You may have heard that Jesus said we are to be in the world while not being of it. But he actually takes it one step further. He doesn't just say we are in the world. The fuller version of what he says is this. I have given them, the disciples, your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. John 17, verses 14 through 19. Did you see it? We're not just in the world. Instead, like Jesus, we are sent into the world. And we are here for a specific purpose. That's why we cannot leave it and still be his disciples any more than the Son could have avoided coming to earth and still have been its Savior. But of course, there is a difference between being sent to a farm and rolling around in its mud. Jesus said this is why he sanctifies himself for the specific purpose that they too may be truly sanctified. To be sanctified is the opposite of being worldly, but while still in the world. Jesus' specific sanctified purpose and identity is that he is the Christ, the anointed Savior. Everything he did and is doing fits perfectly with their identity, whether performing miracles, preaching, judging unrighteousness, or joking around with little kids. He was set apart for that purpose, and everything he does is part of his sacredness. Part of Jesus' purpose in sanctifying himself was that we would do it. He showed us what it looked like to be sent into the world, yet not be of the world. How to love the world while being hated by it. Verse 14. Sanctification is the Bible's word for spiritual substance. It means to be completely set apart from the world in godliness while being entirely embedded in the world for its redemption. To be substantive, sanctified Christians, we have to say goodbye to the world, worldliness, without saying goodbye to the world, creation. Sharpening your zombie radar, the importance of discernment. Can you tell the difference between a real and a counterfeit dollar bill? Why does all police shooting training include pictures of good guys mixed in with bad guys? Why can't military pilots be colorblind? Why do graphic designers think there are 47 different shades of blue? These and a hundred other possible examples show how incredibly important it is to be able to tell the difference between things in life. The spiritual process of formation, sanctification, requires a process of learning what we should receive, what we should reject, and what we should redeem. This is called discernment, and it's not an optional virtue for a person of spiritual substance. Without discernment, we will not be able to tell the difference between being in the world we are sent to and being captured by worldliness. But how do we acquire discernment? How do we sort through the entire culture of secular modernity and understand exactly what we should be receiving, rejecting, and redeeming? Isn't that going to be infinitely complex? Or won't we become prone to default to either yes, liberal, or no, conservative, ultimately dividing us all into two camps of lawless libertines and fundamentalist protectionists? We can avoid that faith if we let the gospel show us how to say goodbye to worldliness and develop discernment responding to God's revelations with conviction. This requires being transformed by the renewing of our minds, Romans 12, 1 and 2, and receiving the mind of Christ, 
1 Corinthians 2.16. Remember, God has given us everything we need to become discerning people. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Our evil desires and the idols that gratify them are twisted versions of good desires and their God-gifted enjoyment. Evil is not the opposite of good. It is the degradation of something good in itself or in relation to other goods. Evil cannot create. It can only twist and derange. Think of evil as a virus like rabies. Rabies can't create a dog. It can only infect and distort your childhood puppy into an enemy. But the tricky thing is that idols look and sound so much like the good things they've twisted. They're like zombie versions of God's truly good design, but zombies with really good makeup. Or at least it looks that way to us when we have such poor eyes. That's why, without gospel discernment, worldliness can hide in plain sight and define our lives even while we try desperately to devote our hearts to Jesus. Without discernment, we don't see how our lives have been warped and bent into grotesque versions of the good things God created as gifts. Gospel discernment enables us to recognize zombies as what they are, allowing us to say goodbye to the counterfeit and joyfully embrace and enjoy the wholesome creation original. It clears away the fog of confusion that keeps us trapped in misunderstandings about God, His goodness, and the true distortions and enslavement of worldliness. Discernment is the first step in allowing the lethargy of idolatry to become the vigor of worship. Evil desires can corrupt creation by twisting something in itself, which is sin, or by making a good thing absolute or independent, which is idolatry. The following are examples of good desires gone bad that have created idols that make us shallow and fragile. They are exercises in discerning the deformation of God's good creation and recovering its wholesome original. Only when we can discern the original from the counterfeit can we say goodbye to the path of worldliness by rejecting or redeeming what we cannot receive in its present state. Example 1. Dreams and Visions if you want to become the villain in a room of modern, secular people, just say this. Kids don't need dreams. They need responsibilities. The modern obsession with pursuing dreams, especially for children, would have seemed insane two generations ago and back to, well, the beginning of recorded history. Still, something about the claim that people should have dreams comes from a genuine insight about creation. That's why we find the idol plausible in the first place. Dreams emerge from imagination, and imagination opens the mind to possibilities. But this is the rub of the idol. Kids and we don't need specific dreams. They need well-developed imaginations. Our problem isn't that we don't dream big enough. Our problem is that we can't dream strange enough because our imaginations can't make more than a couple moves into the future. Imagination works best as a faculty creating possibilities that can be easily discarded. When we treat the products of our imagination like stone tablets, which is how many of us approach dreams, we hamper the next moment's imagination and we become terrified to let go of absolute dreams. A gospel-driven imagination can accept providence, creation, limitations that come from being finite and misfortune while still accommodating the imagination of others. Personal dreams, not forged by the gospel, become calcified idols that blind our personal worth to a view of ourselves, stuck in situations, roles, and accomplishments that almost certainly are not part of our real future. 
Imagination allows substantive people to apply themselves to the improvisational presence without being angered by things they can never control. They can make the most of the presence since they feel no debilitating sense of loss from, quote, losing their dreams. Lastly, teamwork, friendship, romance, and community require constantly re-imaging life with new and eccentric characters and events we could have never anticipated. Substantive people have the character and imagination to constantly write a new story with the ending unknown. Static dreams, no matter how big, make us narrower and more fragile. They make us less likely to accomplish a worthwhile dream. You might not think that sounds very Christian. Maybe you've heard people reference this verse, where there is no vision, the people perish. Proverbs 29.18a, King James Version. I've heard a number of fiery sermons about how we all need dreams like Joseph, the dreamer of the Bible. But these biblical examples actually make my point perfectly. Interestingly, the word for vision in this proverb is actually the word for prophetic revelation, like God's word, not a plan for the future or a personal dream. The second half of the verse clarifies, quote, but blessed is the one who heeds wisdom's instructions, Proverbs 29, 18b, NIV. So the point of the verse is that when no one knows or speaks God's truth, people do whatever they want, and it's terrible. Conversely, the person who knows and does God's commands is blessed. That is, you don't need a dream. You need to know and obey God's revelation. You need a character formed by God's universal revelation, not your own subjective personal dream. The verse means literally the opposite of what many quoted to mean. Take, for example, Joseph. First, God gives him a dream, literally a dream that comes to him in his sleep. Second, note that the dream comes from God, not from Joseph's own imagination. Third, by directly applying the dream and telling people he got in a lot of trouble. Fourth, the dream was fulfilled through providential events over which he had absolutely no control and in ways he could never have anticipated. Joseph did nothing strategically to make his dream come true. Lastly, God used Joseph's character to bring about the dream. Joseph is one of only a few biblical figures about whose character nothing negative is said. He was a man of substance. God and godliness brought him to the realization of his dream. Our dreams emerge from who we already are. So the most important preconditions of a great dream or vision are substance, character, and godliness. We don't need a special dream to become a person of substance, but substantive people produce the best dreams. Let the dreaming go and really follow Proverbs 29.18. Learn to follow God's word by the Spirit. The deeper you go, the more the gospel will expand your imagination. Dreams and visions you currently have may fall away, but more beautiful and potentially wilder ones will emerge from a more spiritually substantial you. Dreams and visions are good exercises, but bad gods. Without profound substance, they tend to be unrealistic, narcissistic, self-important messes of idealism run amok that disappoint us, debilitate our expectations, and hurt others. Ironically, they can cripple and narrow God's good creation or imagination. They tempt us to take shortcuts into sin and worldliness to bring them about. Yet, when our vision comes from God's revealed truth, vision, 
and a gospel-filled imagination, then our dreams emerge from the solid source of substance. Example 2. Self-Esteem It took modern science decades to realize that the self-esteem fad was a huge mistake. Yet our culture is so committed to it that it still infects our self-understanding, our institutions, and our debilitated parenting models. By 2003, the research was already available. Self-esteem may increase happy feelings and initiative, but it also has a pile of major liabilities. It tends to increase in-group favoritism, also known as prejudice or discrimination. Some kinds of self-esteem correlate with the highest levels of lying, stealing, and narcissism. One paper summary notes, the lowest and highest rates of bullying and cheating are found in different subcategories of self-esteem. Self-esteem, as a general idea, does virtually none of what we've been told it would do for two generations. It turns out that the kind of self-worth we have, how we acquire it, and the kind of character to which it is bound determine whether self-esteem will be a balm or a blight. The problematic effect of modern self-esteem on substance is that we want it to precede solidity of merit and character. But stable and secure self-worth is the result of moral formation, personal discipline, and real achievement, and is developed within secure relationships. When our method of inspiring self-esteem is common pseudoscientific flattery, we ask people to build their worth on dishonesty and insubstantial things. This fiction predictably results in people who are entitled and yet insecure, the very definition of a tyrant. Such self-value has its feet planted in mid-air, and deep down we know it. This is why those with sky-high self-esteem can be among the most insecure people. In treating self-esteem as primary, we have tried to create self-worth by inflaming vanity with flattery. Worse, we have done it especially to the young, those least able to understand its devastating effect on them. The substantive message of Christ tells us self-worth must come from a larger truth about both selves and worth. We must already know what human selves are and what they're worth within creation and redemption. Substantive human worth is a moral value based on truths about our creation, redemption, purpose, and relation to God, and our ultimate destiny. That is accurate, and solid self-worth comes from our being in God's image, purpose, and relationship with other things. Therefore, self-worth is a classic dependent thing. It depends not only on other character qualities, but also on other truths, spiritual and moral ones. Moral substance has always situated our sense of self-worth alongside the value of everything else. You are worth a great price, shown both in creation and redemption, and so is your neighbor who you dislike. So is the person of a different race or creed. So are the environment, truth, virtue, courtesy, covenants, and community. Jesus tells us that we are of incredible value but that our value comes from many other values and priorities in the cosmos to which we are related. It is only in seeing our value situated alongside all other right values and goods that we can see ourselves as worthwhile while being incredibly humble, honest, thankful, self-sacrificial, loving, and worshipful. Put self-esteem before substance, and we lose the latter and deform the former. Focus on substance, and we get self-worth for free. We must learn to discern the right kind of self-worth from its distorted counterfeit. Then pursue the real and abandon our obsession with the imposter. The Point of Goodbye 
We could dig into the worldly understandings of image, approval, humor, and consumption and comfort in the same way and come up with similar results. When we only care about these things because of how they gratify our fleshly desires, we sever them from the values and truths of God's creation and redemption, outside of which they can't really exist. When our evil desires latch on to how they gratify us, these good creations are corrupted and deformed. It's only by saying a decisive goodbye to worldliness and pursuing substance in Christ by His power that we can become discerning. Only in a decisive goodbye can all these creation gifts come back to us in good health and in their right place. That's not self-help manipulation. Jesus said this is how creation works. We see this in Matthew 6, verses 31 through 33. He said, So do not worry about what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear. For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. This comes just a few verses after Matthew 5, verse 6c, which says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Do you see the difference between the pagans, worldliness, and the blessed, godliness, slash substance? The kingdom of God and his righteousness are to be pursued directly, they are the things that ground everything else. When they are in place, everything else can fall into place. Those with spiritual substance, hunger and thirst for righteousness, more than their inner wanter drives them to food, drink, and clothes, and lattes, heated seats, great vacations, and so on. For the one who hungers and thirsts after righteousness or substance, God makes two promises. One, you will be filled with substance. Two, God knows about your other needs for subsistence. To say it another way, the difference is between what we must actively pursue and what will take care of itself. Worldliness has this backward. It entices us to pursue everything except Christ-likeness and His kingdom, God Himself, when in reality only this single-hearted pursuit can release us from the fear of scarcity. Many Christians are familiar with the part of Matthew 6 that says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well, verse 33. But they don't know the larger context of that verse. Taken as part of this larger passage, it's clear that all these things refers to food, clothes, and all our tangible needs. It might not normally occur to us, but seeking God's kingdom and righteousness is more in our control than buying bread or a shirt. A decision or action is something you can do, while getting results in even the smallest task requires things outside our control, things under God's providential rule. God knows we have needs and that many things are out of our control, yet if we seek God's kingdom and righteousness, we move with Him toward everything we need. When we pursue the way God has promised to work, His kingdom and righteousness, God works for us in our character and in situations we can't control. We place ourselves in a position in which God's work to reveal His own glory includes Him working for our good. See also Romans 6, verses 26 through 39. Jesus has called us to spiritual substance, sanctification, and has demanded we pursue godliness in the world to which we have been sent, John 17. Doing this requires discernment that can only be developed by pursuing godliness as a hunger and a thirst. Do you thirst for Jesus, his spiritual substance, and escape from the corruption of worldliness?
If we seek these, God promises that all the other things we require will be added to us as well. When we are transformed by the renewing of our minds, Romans 12:2, in Christ and the gospel, we can discern the purpose and use of all the gifts of creation. We can understand the purpose, meaning, and duties of our lives. Once the ultimate things are present, they can support the things that depend upon them. Therefore, if Jesus is right, we have to say goodbye to our old way of viewing the world and our own way of pursuing our good. One of the most difficult things to do is when we're short on substance is to embrace something that's decidedly not cool. But discernment recognizes that a new path is waiting, a path that leads to the substance that fills our deepest God-given hunger and thirst. It leads out of the corruption in the world and toward His very great and precious promises in the gospel. 2 Peter 1 verse 4. The Mark of Substance, God's Dream for You. So what does substance look like? The Bible shows us four primary marks of spiritual substance, four traits that characterize substantive followers of Jesus. We could easily come up with at least 15, but if we understand these four marks, we will have a very biblical and helpful sense of what spiritual substance looks like. Pursue these, and all the other traits will be added to you. Plus, Jesus said everything else in life will be added to you too. 1. Living in self-sacrificial love. Love is the queen of the virtues, and holy love is the essence of God's character. Outflowing love recognizes that we are stewards, and that everything we have belongs to God to be used for His purposes, not for our own comfort, power, control, or approval. It is the enemy of selfishness, ambition, vanity, and conceit. Philippians 2 verse 3. God sends us to love others, and demands we trust Him for our reward. 2. Seeking the mind of Christ. We need a renewing transformation of mind, including both a systematic rejection of the patterns of this world that is worldliness and a complete renewal of our minds in the knowledge of Christ. Romans 12 verse 2. The purpose of the mind of Christ is that we can know God's will and embrace it as living sacrifices who please God, serve others, and are satisfied in God. 3. Walking in virtuous freedom. God's ultimate plan for redeemed humans is freedom. We're not meant to be shallow and stupid animals fenced in by an exhaustive set of rules. Nor are we supposed to be robots who can only execute direct commands. God has made us free, creative agents, living by His Spirit on His mission. However, freedom requires virtue and maturity of character. 4. Keeping in Step with the Spirit Our bodies are to be living sacrifices, not gratification machines. Once we know what God's will is, we have to combine the knowledge, 2 Peter 1 verse 3, and the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2 16, with the discipline to follow the Spirit rather than our sinful desires until our desires align with the Spirit more and more. Keeping in step with the Spirit is the application of the gospel through faith in all the improvisational choices and situations of each day. We should be eager to see ourselves growing in these four marks of substance knowing that they are signs that we are becoming increasingly substantive disciples and ultimately becoming more like Christ. The spiritual character resulting from pursuing these four marks will completely change our inner lives. In them, we will know how to use our freedom without indulging our sinful desires. Galatians 5 verse 13. It will liberate us from the anxiety and restlessness that comes from worldliness. 
the boredom we feel in repetition, the smothering of our faith and our resentment toward God who won't tolerate our love of mammon. We will no longer be fragile creatures grasping at shallow pleasures. We'll have the substance to find and take satisfaction in all of our toil. Ecclesiastes 3, verses 11 through 13. We will find peace, pleasure, and significance in the roles, rhythms, repetitions, and responsibilities, what I call the four R's of ordinary life. In all of this, we will find our hearts enlarged and filled with a deeper love. Deep love that imitates God's love is like a liquid inside the vessel of human character. A vaporous character cannot contain love. Only a solid vessel, even a vessel that's plain and chipped, can be filled with love and of use in pouring it out. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. That can be you. We can be a people characterized by deep love, satisfaction, solidity, peace, and pleasure as we pursue God and His kingdom first, trusting Him to supply the rest. In part two of this book, we'll examine each of these four marks in more detail.